So Stephen mentioned earlier, uh, we are in the season of Advent, and uh, I don't know if you caught it, but there was a great um, article in the New York Times just this past uh, Sunday um, about what Advent really means. It was written by uh, Tish Harrison Warren. Um, she's an Episcopal priest, and uh, she wrote this. For Christians, Christmas is a celebration of Jesus' birth, that light has come into darkness, and as the Gospel of John says, the darkness could not overcome it. But Advent bids us first to pause and to look with complete honesty at that darkness. To practice Advent is to lean into an almost cosmic ache, our deep wordless desire for things to be made right, and the incompleteness we find in the meantime. So that really is uh, the heart of Advent. And uh, over the past four Sundays, um, I hope you haven't just, if you've been here, uh, I hope you haven't just skipped from Sunday to Sunday, uh, but I hope you've engaged Advent in more intentional ways in your own life. Um, we've tried to give you some suggestions and some challenges uh, so far. Here's just a few of them to recap. Uh, first week we said, um, why don't you use the Advent guide? We put together a guide. If you haven't been here, there's some on the table um, when you go out, but use the Advent guide to engage some Advent themes throughout Advent. Um, Second week, uh, here's a big challenge. Consider spending 50% less this holiday season. How'd that work on Black Friday or Cyber Monday, right? Um, there's, not, there's still time to, to give that a try if you haven't. Um, we also talked about supporting those who are grieving. Many people grieve during the holiday season, and there'll be a great opportunity to do that in a couple of weeks when we have a special service uh, for that purpose. Um, and then last week, Emily challenged all of us to counter the busyness of this season. And one way to do that um, is to just practice Sabbath, practice a day a week where you intentionally uh, rest and reconnect um, with yourself and with God. Now, there's all kinds of other ways, and I hope you've taken some of these challenges seriously. But uh, today, um, we want to talk about another uh, power of darkness. That's been the theme of this Advent. What are those powers of darkness in our world, and what can we do about them? So today I want to talk about another power of darkness, and I want to tell you a story. Um, and it's actually, uh, it's a fascinating story. It's fairly memorable. You might have heard it before if you grew up going to church. It's from Jesus' life, and it's found in the Gospel of John. Um, and it's, it's, it's only found in the Gospel of John. And when you get to this story in this part of John, there's actually a footnote that you'll see in most Bibles you read. And here's what the footnote says about this story. Um, it usually says something like this. The earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not contain John 7, 53 through 8, 11. So let me explain this for a second before we actually read the story. Um, because many of the manuscripts, so we have all these old manuscripts. The manuscripts we have from about the 5th century on have this story in them. And so they've been a part of our Bibles uh, for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, but then scholars realize that some of the older manuscripts we have don't contain this story, or they contain it in some different places. Um, now, there is mention of this story from about the second century on. Um, and when it does show up uh, in the Bible, sometimes it's in this spot in John, sometimes it's in another place in John. There's actually some manuscripts we have where this story is in Matthew and some others we have where this story shows up in Luke. And it's one of those puzzles where we don't know exactly what happened. Um, most scholars definitely believe this is a true story. Uh, there's nothing odd or, or inconsistent about this story with other things we know about Jesus. Um, and it doesn't seem like a story that was made up in, in, in any fashion. Um, it was mostly 
It was most likely, it was one of the stories that was told about Jesus' life early on with all of the stories that were told. And you have to remember that decades went by where these stories were just told orally. People told these stories before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John actually wrote down their books. And so the thinking is, this was one of those very popular stories that everyone knew, but for some reason, in the first version of John or one of the earlier versions of John, it got left out or maybe a scribe forgot to copy it or something happened. And it was a generation or two later that people said, what happened? Where did this story go? This is, this is a famous and important and true story that we all know, and it's a really important one. We need to make sure, but they weren't exactly sure where to put it in, so they put it back in in this spot in John, and they put it in some other spots, um, but they weren't sure. But I think this is an interesting aspect because rather than making us question it, I think this actually lends some authenticity to this story. It helps us remember that these were real people who actually saw and experienced these things in Jesus' life. And they saw and experienced what happened, and they told everyone else about it. And they got to the point where somehow the story got left out, and they said, no, 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 this is so important. We need to make sure people know about what happened. So that's the setup for this story, and here's what happens, starting in chapter 8, verse 2. It says, At dawn, <clears throat> Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. So Jesus is in Jerusalem, probably for one of the Jewish festivals. Jews would travel there uh, two or three times a year for one of the main festivals. And uh, he goes to the temple courts one morning, and it's dawn. It's early. The sun is just coming up, and there's already a bunch of people there. It's bustling. And, uh, and the temple courts would be like the plaza outside of the temple. So the temple was the big building, um, but he's not inside the temple. He's on the steps or in the big plaza just outside of the temple. And it says he sits down to teach. And that was uh, normal. That was part of the culture. Rabbis would always sit down to teach in that time. And we don't know if he sat on a log or a stone or there was a bench or maybe he sat on the steps that were going up to the temple. But he begins to sit down. He begins to teach. And people start listening to him teach. And then it says this. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. And they made her stand before the group. And they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So these two groups of people, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, um, were actually the people who had all the authority in Jewish culture. Sometimes we see them as the bad guys because they were trying to trap Jesus oftentimes. But in that culture, they were the good guys. These were the religious leaders. They were well-respected. They held the positions of honor. Everyone looked up to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. And so they show up and they put this woman in front of Jesus. Remember, Jesus is sitting down and they stand her up in front of Jesus and in front of all the crowds and she's been caught in the act of adultery. Which means they didn't just hear this. She was actually caught. There were two witnesses there who saw her cheating on her husband, caught her sleeping with another man that she wasn't married to. Now, we find out there's actually a backstory. These leaders are trying to trap Jesus. 
And here's how they're trying to trap Jesus, because if she's guilty, and it, it seems like she is, I mean, she was caught in the very act, right? Then according to the Old Testament law, adultery was such a serious crime against your family, against the commitment you had made, against God, against really all of the community, because the community was held together by these kinds of commitments. It was seen as such a serious act that anyone who did it was supposed to be stoned to death. Not just the woman, the man as well. They were both supposed to receive that punishment. But the Romans controlled Israel at this time. <laughs> Israel was under Roman law and Roman authority, and the Roman laws and the Roman authorities wouldn't just let the Jews execute anyone they wanted to for any reason they wanted to. Only the Romans held that power. And so... They asked Jesus, what should we do about her? And if Jesus says, well, no, she shouldn't be executed, well, now he's going against the tradition and the laws of Moses, and that's a problem. But if he says, yeah, let's go ahead and stone her, well, now he's usurping Roman authority, and the Roman officials are going to hear about this, and they're going to say, well, that's a slap in our face. You're rebelling against our laws and our authority, and that's going to be a problem as well. But remember, Caught up in all of this is a woman standing there in front of everyone, alone, embarrassed, humiliated, and ashamed. Now, the truth is, she's guilty. We don't know her story. Um, her life is probably a mess. We don't know exactly what she did or what led her to do it. We don't know if her marriage was falling apart, and that's why she went looking for someone else. We don't know if her husband abused her, and that's why she went to find comfort in someone else. We don't know. Maybe her husband was an amazing guy, and her life was boring, and she was looking for something new because the grass is always greener, right? We don't know. We don't know if she had been doing this. Maybe she had been doing it a long time. Maybe every time she did this, she felt horrible, and she regretted it, but somehow she couldn't stop herself from doing it, and this was her deepest secret, her, her biggest failure, her biggest source of shame, and now it's suddenly exposed, and she's standing in front of everyone else, caught in the very act. And I, I really, as I thought about it, I couldn't imagine a more lonely and humiliating scenario for someone. And so I want to pause the story there and just ask you to take a moment and think about your own life and put yourself in her position for a second. What are you most ashamed of? Maybe there's some secret fault or weakness or failure or sin in your life that you would never want anyone else to know. Uh, for a lot of people, it's pornography, right? I mean, that's dirty and shameful and embarrassing and, and humiliating, and no one would ever want to know want anyone else to know that you've looked at that or that's a regular part of your life. Maybe it's some other fault. Maybe it's an addiction that you're hiding. 
Uh, maybe your spouse or close relatives know about it, but nobody else does because you're pretty good at keeping it a secret. And it's not just that you feel guilty about it, right? It's deeper than that. You see, guilt is when we do something that we know is wrong. Guilt is when we do something that we know is contrary to our own beliefs and our own values. And guilt is wrapped up in a specific action or a specific pattern of behavior. And psychologists will actually tell you that guilt can be productive. Guilt can be helpful. When you hurt someone else and you feel guilty about it, it's guilt that helps you realize, I hurt them and now there's a break in our relationship, and I need to go repair it. I need to go say I'm sorry. It's a guilty conscience that compels you to do something about that. You see, it's not actually guilt that's one of those dark powers in our world. Shame. Shame is the dark power in our world. It's shame that makes us feel horrible about ourselves. It's shame that disconnects us from other people, from the people we love, from God himself. It's, it's shame that says, you better make sure nobody else ever finds out about this. It's shame that keeps us in those dark and lonely places. Uh, Brene Brown is a well-known writer and speaker. You might have read some of her books. She describes the difference between guilt and shame really well. She says this, Guilt is I did something bad. Shame is I am bad. Guilt is I made a mistake. Shame is I am a mistake. You see, shame makes us feel that in my very being, I'm just a bad person because I keep doing this over and over and over, and that makes me unlovable. That makes me unlovable. Worthy, Because the truth is, if you knew what I was really like, if you knew what I really looked at and what I really thought and what I really did when no one else was looking, you would reject me. You would think I was dirty and rotten and unclean and a horrible person. You would see me the way I see myself. Now, <clears throat> shame comes from, it can come from sin or some failure or weakness that we have or something we keep doing that we regret. Um, but sometimes shame comes just from our own self-image. I don't think I'm as smart as everyone else. And I want to make sure no one else knows that. Or I don't think I'm as attractive as everyone else. And so I want to cover that up as best I can. I don't think I'm as successful as everybody else. I don't think I'm as skinny as everybody else. Uh, sometimes we're ashamed of our circumstances things that we maybe can't control. Sometimes we're ashamed of our past. Uh, I remember one episode in high school. Um, I grew up going to a private school. Uh, it was called Durham Academy. I grew up in North Carolina. And um, everybody at the private school I went to came from very wealthy and accomplished families. Now, my dad was a surgeon, um, so my parents had means to be able to send me uh, to a private school. But my parents also grew up in the South, and they grew up in very frugal, sort of Depression-era homes and families. So other than my private education, my parents were actually pretty frugal. My, my sister always joked, I thought we were poor growing up, right? And because my dad drove this old, beat-up Chevy pickup truck. And I remember we didn't even have a dryer at home. 
we had a clothesline out back, because that's just what my mom grew up with. Like, she grew up drying her clothes on the clothesline out back. A dryer was for families who could afford that kind of luxury, and we couldn't afford that. I remember one summer uh, going to lacrosse camp with some friends. I think it was ninth or 10th grade, um, and it was near my house. Um, and one day we came home, uh, we came back to my house during a lunch break, uh, me and a couple of friends that were at camp together. I remember my friend Cameron drove us. Cameron was a year older than me, and Cameron's dad was the president of Duke University. And Cameron had a brand new Saab 900S Turbo. It was amazing. Um, I remember getting back to my house, and Cameron was like, man, my shirt is so wet, because we were all sweaty and wet from drinking water. He was like, can I just throw it in your dryer for a few minutes? And I remember this, like, wave of shame, like, just wash, like, we don't have a dryer. And just knowing that in that moment I was going to be found out. Like I had faked being wealthy and cool and accomplished and from a family like all of their families for so long, but in that moment they would realize I wasn't really like them. I didn't really fit in. And that's what shame does. When you feel that kind of shame that kind of rejection, you just know people aren't going to accept you. You're not going to fit in. <laughs> and so that tells us you better just keep those parts of your lives hidden. You better fake it as long as you can. So here's what shame does. Shame does three things. Shame isolates, shame alienates, and shame separates. We see this in the garden. There's a story about Adam and Eve. You remember the story Adam and Eve disobey God, right? And it's not just that they feel guilty, because if they felt guilty about disobeying God, they would have run back to God and said, we're so sorry we disobeyed you. You expected us not to. We told you we wouldn't, but we did, and we want to say we're sorry and make it right. But it wasn't just that they felt guilty. You remember what it says? Suddenly they felt exposed. They saw that they were naked in front of God, and they were ashamed. And so what did they do? They hid from God. Because they believed clearly God doesn't like us anymore. He doesn't love us anymore. He doesn't even want to be around us. He will reject us for what we've done. And so they hid from God because shame isolates us. It alienates us. And it separates us. So there's this woman, and she's standing in front of all the religious leaders. And what have they done? They've basically already condemned and rejected her in shame. And all the crowds are standing there, and they're probably beginning to pick up the rocks. They're ready to reject her and condemn her as well. And the question is, what's Jesus have to say about all this? And the story says this. But Jesus bent down, and he started to write on the ground with his finger. This huge moment, everyone's wondering, what does the rabbi that everyone thinks is amazing, what's he going to say about this? And he just stoops down and starts drawing or writing in the sand. So what do you think he wrote? Uh, nobody really knows. Um, it doesn't say. 
Um, I, I tend to think Jesus was like cooling off. This was his way of counting to 10, right? Maybe he was writing to 10, I don't know. Um, because he knows they're just using this woman as a pawn. They're trying to trap me, and they're shaming her in order to do it. He knows that anyone else in the circle, everyone that's standing there is just as guilty as she is, is hiding something in their lives just as much as she is, right? I mean, the man that she was sleeping with, he was just as guilty. Why isn't he here? If they were caught in the act, why is only she here? Why isn't he here as well? Jesus knows that any one of those leaders that brought her has hidden sin, hidden shame, hidden failure, and he could have exposed it all in that moment if he had really wanted to, right? So maybe he just stooped down, he's writing in the sand, Fred cheated on his rabbi exam, right? (laughs) Joe steals money from the offering. Robert eats bacon every morning, right? (laughs) I don't know. I mean, maybe Jesus was just tempted by this idea, I should just go around and expose every single person to the same shame that they're heaping on her. But he didn't. And the leaders wouldn't give up, because it goes on to say this. When they kept questioning him, he straightened up, and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. In other words, you said she's guilty of sin, and maybe she is, right? Uh, So anyone else who's here who's not guilty of sin, you can pick up the first stone. Anyone else who's not hiding anything, go for it. Anyone else who has nothing that they're ashamed of, anyone else who has nothing in their lives that they don't want brought to the light, you just go ahead and pick up the first stone. And then it says this. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first. And they said, who came up with this dumb idea to begin with? No, they didn't say it. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and he asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? It's just him and her. That's all that's left. And he says, Woman, and that sounds a little harsh to us in our language, but it was a more endearing term um, in their language. It would be like saying miss. Miss? Honey in the South? Yeah. (laughs) That'd be a little weird. (laughs) Um... Miss, where'd they all go? Is there no one left to condemn you? And the word condemn here is a, is a fascinating Greek word. It's the word um, katakrino. And it's actually sort of two words or a word and something else put together. The word krino is the common word in Greek for judge or condemn or push aside. And then the prepositional um, prefix, kata, means away or down. Jesus is basically saying, is there no one left here to to downjudge you? Is there no one left here that can just reject you? 
and push you aside? Is there no one left here that can just cast you away? Is there no one left here who's so much better than you, who has their life in so much order, who has nothing to hide so that they could stand in judgment over you and condemn you and reject you? And she answers, no one, sir, she said. Now, before we read back what Jesus says to her, I want you to imagine for a moment that you are her and that you're standing in front of Jesus. And the thing that you're most ashamed about has been exposed. The thing that you feel not just guilty about, but just embarrassment and humiliation. And if anyone ever knew this, or if people knew this about me, they would reject me. They would see me as unworthy and unlovable and dirty and unclean. And fill in the blank. The thing that you just, it's been exposed. And you're standing there in front of Jesus. And then he says this to you. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Guilty? Yeah. Condemned? No. Caught in the act? Yep. Rejected? No. Did you mess up? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you messed up. Do I cast you away or push you aside? No. I don't reject you. I don't condemn you. And just think for a moment. She's standing before the one person who do, does have the authority if he wanted to condemn her, right? She's standing in front of the one person who did do everything right. The one person who could have said, you know what? I was able to keep all the laws. I was able to keep all of my commitments, and I was tempted, and I was able to do it. Why couldn't you do it? The one person in the whole world who had the authority if he wanted to pick up a stone and condemn her. And he says, no, neither do I condemn you. And then he adds this, go now and leave your life of sin. Uh, wait a second, no lecture? No, you don't need a lecture. You know what you did. You know the consequences it's going to have in your life. So you need to make some changes. Go make some changes. Don't let this happen again. But, but doesn't this make me a terrible person? No. You're not a terrible You made a mistake. Okay, maybe it wasn't a mistake, right? Maybe it was a decision, a bad decision. Maybe it was a whole series of bad decisions, but that doesn't make you a terrible person, and that doesn't make you unworthy, and that doesn't make you unlovable. And in fact, you're never going to be able to change. You're never going to be able to stop making these kinds of decisions until you come face to face with the fact that when you do these things, it doesn't make you unlovable in my eyes. I love you more than I ever have, and I want to walk with you and see your life be transformed. But I didn't come here to judge you, and I didn't come here to reject you, and I did not come here to condemn you. You know why Jesus came? John actually tells us in an earlier part of the book, he says this, 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He didn't come to judge you or to condemn you or to look down on you or to cast you aside when you screw up or when you make bad decisions or when you have things in your life that you're ashamed of. And he certainly didn't come to heap more shame on you. He's like the father in the garden who went looking for Adam and Eve while they were hiding from him. And the lie that we often believe about God is when we do something that we're ashamed of is he rejects us. He's angry at us. He's mad. He condemns us. And so I want you to embrace two truths this morning that I think will combat that lie. Here's the first truth. Number one is you are not alone. You're not alone. Whatever it is that you're ashamed of, you're not alone. You think you're the only one that has panic attacks? You're not. You think you're the only one who doesn't know the answer in class? You're not. (laughs) You think you're the only one who compulsively lies to the people closest to you? You're not. You think you're the only one who's overweight? Nope. You think you're the only one that looks at pornography? No. You think you're the only one who has a dysfunctional marriage? No. You think you're the only one, and that alienates you. But we all have something we're ashamed of. We all carry those things. And so we keep hiding from one another. But imagine if we became a community, or you had a community of people in your life that didn't hide from one another and kept saying to you, you're not alone. That's the first truth. Here's what you're hiding And he still loves you. Why? Because you're his son. You're his daughter. Nothing you can do will change his love for you. And you might say, well, wow, that sounds pretty amazing. (laughs) Yeah. Why we call it amazing grace, right? That's why we sing about it. That Jesus could know every single thing about all of our lives. And he still loves us. And he still wants what's best for us. And we could be in the worst moment standing before him just like that woman was. And he'd look at us and say, I don't condemn you. So here's what I want to do. I want you to take a few moments and just reflect on that truth. We're going to sing a song, and you can sing the song with us, or you can just stay in your seat and listen to the words. I hope we'll all come face to face with that reality, that we're not alone. No matter what we've done or what we feel, Jesus doesn't reject us or condemn us. So let me pray real quick. God, it's... um, It's hard to, I think, embrace this truth because so many of us have been condemned and have been rejected. Um, Sometimes from religious leaders, sometimes from parents, from friends, from just the crowds. So it's easy, it seems to us, to keep hiding. Um, And so I just pray in the next few moments that... um, You'll give us the courage to not hide. Um, 
And give us the courage to embrace the truth that you love us no matter what. And you want what's best for each and every one of us. Pray this in your name.